You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. In November 1519, Hernan Cortes and his men crossed over the mountains at more than 13,000 feet and beheld a sight no European had ever imagined existed. In the valley below them were a series of linked lakes, roughly 10 miles wide and 40 miles long. Beautiful cities with orderly whitewashed houses dotted the lake's shores, while well-manicured fields of beans and maize dominated the countryside. And in the center of the main lake was an island, and on that island was a city more magnificent than anything Cortez and his men had ever seen. There were great towers, magnificent palaces, massive temples, a huge marketplace, a pair of zoos, an aquarium, and even botanical gardens. The city was linked to the mainland, as well as other islands, by elaborately constructed causeways. The city, which seemed to float on the lake, was home to upwards of a quarter of a million people. This was Tenochtitlan, the heart of the mighty Aztec Empire and Hernan Cortez vowed to conquer it. Today on the Explorers podcast, we are going to look at the life of Spanish conquistador Hernan Cortez, and specifically his conquest of Mexico in the early 1520s. Now, let's not make any bones about things. This is a conquest. Sure, the Spanish did not know about the Aztec Empire until after Cortez landed in Mexico, but after that, going to the Aztec capital was like following an interstate highway, complete with signs and on and off ramps. Yes, Cortez will do some exploring, but this podcast will be about conquest. And by the time we finish up, you will understand why no man deserves the title of conquistador more than Cortez. Now, a few things to talk about before we get our story underway. First, there are some maps of Cortez's route into the heart of Mexico on our website, explorerspodcast.com. I recommend giving it a glance if you can. It will help you understand our story. Second, I want to apologize ahead of time for my pronunciation skills. Even with help, I know I don't always do that well. And this time, it's even more of a challenge, as there are Aztec and Maya names in places we are going to encounter. I have used the best resources I could find to help me with these pronunciations, but again, forgive me if I butcher things. Third thing is about the sources for this podcast. Thankfully, we have several really good primary sources regarding Cortez's campaign, but we must look at them all with a wary eye. I do want to mention a few of them before we get going. First, there were Cortez's letters. In his life, he wrote a series of letters to the Spanish crown relating his journey to Mexico and his conquest of the Aztec Empire. On one hand, these are incredible primary sources, but on the other, we have to remember that Cortez is writing to please his king and queen, and to defend his actions in the New World. Therefore, these letters are very self-serving, and we have to look at them with wariness. 
The second source I want to mention is an account of the events written by a man named Bernal Diaz, who was a soldier in Cortez's army. However, Diaz wrote his account almost 50 years after the events, so again, while an incredible narrative, we need to be wary about its accuracy. The third primary source is the Florentine Codex. This was a fascinating research study of Mesoamerica done by a Franciscan friar, Bernardino de Sayun. The project began in 1545, and it gives us a look at the conquest of Mexico from the viewpoint of the defeated indigenous peoples. However, like the Spanish sources, we must be wary about all that is written, as such translations are not always perfect. So that's a few of the sources. There are many others, but these are some of the major ones. Also, keep in mind that many of the sources conflict with one another, so what I tell you may not always mesh with things you have heard or have read. Just know that I have gone with what I feel is the best interpretation of the events we are covering. So with that, let's get going. The Life of Hernan Cortez Hernan Cortez was born in 1485 in Medellin, Castile, which is in north-central Spain. His father was Martin Cortez, and his mother was Catalina Pizarro Altamiriano. I'm sure you just noted I said Pizarro there. Cortez was distantly related to Francisco Pizarro, who would go on to conquer the Inca Empire. The Cortez family was of noble blood, but meager means. There were lots of these kinds of people in Spain, called Hidalgos. They were proud of their heritage, but lacked money and property. Growing up, Cortez was reportedly a pale and sickly child, but one who showed cleverness and intelligence. At the age of 14, he was sent to Salamanca to study Latin and law with his uncle. His parents envisioned him having a legal career. However, Cortez would prove to be a restless teenager. He would spend two years in Salamanca, where, according to Francisco Lopez de Gamara, a priest, friend, and biographer of Cortez, he grew up to be, quote, ruthless, haughty, mischievous, and quarrelsome, and we should add, much given to women, end quote. In other words, he was a snotty teenager who liked to chase girls. On his return home, Cortez grew frustrated by rural life. He would leave, spending about a year roaming the western ports of Spain, including doing a stint as a notary in Seville, before arranging to go to the New World. Cortez arrived in Santo Domingo on the island of Hispaniola in 1504. He would have been 18 or 19 years old. Luckily, Cortez had connections. The governor of the island, Nicolas de Ovando, was a family friend and a distant relative. Ovando would eventually award Cortez an encomienda, and appointed him as a notary of the town of Azua, about 50 miles west of Santo Domingo. The encomienda was a Spanish labor system. Basically, it awarded someone the labor of a certain people, in this case, the indigenous natives of Hispaniola. It was essentially communal slavery, and could be immensely valuable. The encomienda system was often used by the Spanish as a way to reward the conquistadors and their supporters in the New World. Cortes seems to have thrived in the Americas. He would add land and slaves, and aid in military operations against rebellious natives on the island. Then, in 1511, he took part in an expedition to conquer Cuba, initially serving as an aide to Diego Valasquez, the expedition's commander. Cortez would then go on to become appointed clerk to the treasurer of the expedition, whose job it was to ensure that the Spanish crown got its quinto, the Royal Fifth. The Royal Fifth, if you recall, was how the Spanish crown made money. The crown would give charters to settle recently found lands or to explore new ones. In exchange, they got one-fifth of the monies these enterprises produced. This would help fuel the rise of Spain as the greatest power in Europe in the 1500s. In Cuba, Cortes would impress those he worked with. He was smart and efficient and thorough. 
After the island was pacified, a bloody process that took three years, he would be appointed as magistrate, or alcalde, of the newly founded settlement of Santiago. The alcalde was basically a mayor and judge and chief administrator all wrapped into one job. Cortes would then add more lands and more slaves, his prosperity growing with each passing year. Now, a few things about Cortes's time in Cuba. First, while involved in the invasion of the island, he appears to not have participated in any combat. In fact, it is believed that Cortes did not actually experience military action until his time in Mexico, although some sources dispute this. Second, Cortes would pretty much get to know everyone of importance on the island. This includes Panfilo de Narvaez, a conquistador who will be very important to our story later. If Narvaez's name sounds familiar, it should. We did an episode a while back on his failed attempt to conquer Florida. If you haven't listened to it, I recommend doing so, as Narvaez is the polar opposite of Cortez with regards on how to conduct a military campaign. The third thing is that as Cortez became more prosperous, he became more and more of a leader in the colony. He was known as a passionate man and an excellent speaker. Over time, people gravitated towards him, and he certainly carried himself with confidence. I have a quote which comes up regarding Cortez. I found the quote in several places, but I could not actually find out who said it, but I thought it was really good, so here you go. Quote, And all he did, in his presence, bearing, conversation, manner of eating, and of dressing, gave signs of a great lord. End quote. That is pretty impressive. You get the feeling that Cortez was becoming more and more important in the colony, and everyone, including himself, knew it. Also, and this is a crucial thing about Cortez, he will not only prove to be confident and competent, but brutally ruthless. It is a trait that we don't necessarily see as we review these early years of Cortez's life, but it is one that will be on full display once he sets out on his expedition to Mexico. Well, all of this would eventually lead to Cortez coming into conflict with others, most notably Governor Valazquez. The conflict was a classic battle between two obstinate and proud men. Each had benefited from the services of the other, yet they would continually bang heads over the next few years, as Cortez became a rival instead of a subordinate. Things would take a bad turn for Cortez over his relationship with a woman named Catalina Suarez, who was either the sister-in-law of the governor or the sister of a friend of the governor. I have read both versions. No matter, Cortez, who would never give up his womanizing ways, seems to have promised to marry Suarez and then backed out, angering the governor. Ultimately, things would settle down, at least for a while, when Cortez married Catalina in 1516. However, know that Cortez's and Velasquez's relationship will be tested repeatedly in the years to come. But now, forces outside of Cuba were taking shape that would, eventually, drastically alter the course of Cortez's life. In early 1517, a man named Francisco Hernandez de Cordoba, with the blessings of Governor Velasquez, led three ships and 110 men to the west from Cuba in search of new lands to settle. When I say settle, that means exploit. They wanted gold and silver and slaves. The latter were needed in Cuba, as so much of the population had been killed in the subjugation of the island, and many others were dying as the result of diseases, such as smallpox and measles. Hernandez de Cordoba's force would become the first Europeans, outside of some shipwreck survivors, to reach the Yucatan Peninsula. Here, the Spanish would discover a civilization that was very different than what they had found in Cuba and in Hispaniola. The local indigenous people were Maya, the Spanish would find the Maya to be an old, complex, and well-ordered society with impressive temples and well-constructed homes and buildings. They would also see items of gold and jewels and pearls. 
The expedition would eventually abandon its campaign after losing roughly half of its men in a battle with the natives. Hernandez de Cordoba, who was gravely injured in the fighting, would die from his wounds a few days after returning to Cuba. So, while the expedition was a failure, it ignited interest in the lands to the west. Cuba, after all, had been pacified, and men were dreaming of the next great adventure and a way to get rich from it. The Spanish heard the stories of a sophisticated culture, and they dreamed of finding a rich and prosperous people who they could conquer and exploit. Bernal Diaz, who I mentioned earlier would write an account of Cortez's expedition, was with Hernandez de Cordoba as well, and he would write of these new lands, quote, better lands have never been discovered, end quote. By the way, the Spanish speculated endlessly as to the nature of this sophisticated civilization to the West. One popular theory was that these people were a lost tribe of Israel. The Spanish could just not comprehend that an advanced civilization could possibly emerge on its own. This kind of thinking is often found in history, with scholars assuming that some remote but advanced people only got that way due to Western influence. So, with interest in the lands to the west peaked, an expedition was organized to follow up on the previous endeavor. The man appointed to lead the expedition by Governor Valasquez was Juan de Grijalva, a veteran of the conquests of Hispaniola and Cuba. It is also believed that he was the nephew of Governor Valasquez. Grijalva departed from Cuba in April of 1518. He had between two and three hundred men and four ships. What exactly were Grijalva's orders isn't exactly clear. I have read some sources say that Grijalva was supposed to establish a settlement, and other sources saying that he was only supposed to explore. This isn't a huge deal, but I want to mention it because it will matter a bit later. Grijalva would reach the island of Cozumel, off the northeastern tip of the Yucatan Peninsula, and encounter the local people. Again, the Spanish would find a sophisticated population. Grijalva would trade with these people, obtaining any gold he could get his hands on. During Grijalva's expedition, the Spanish would have, mostly, friendly relations with the native peoples. They would explore about a thousand miles up the coast, discovering what is now called the Rio Grijalva, and eventually reaching areas under the dominion of the mighty Aztec Empire, a land, he was told, that was flowing with gold and silver and other treasures. Grijalva would reach as far north as the Panuku River, at modern-day Tampico but he would establish no settlement. He would return to Cuba in September 1518, bearing many things of interest, including items of gold he had received from the natives and stories about the peoples he had encountered. And even more important, he would have tales of the rich and powerful empire to the west. Grijalva would also bring back some other tales, that of blood sacrifice and cannibalism. So, despite Grijalva returning home successfully, Governor Valasquez was not happy with his nephew. I've read a couple of reasons for this. One is that Valasquez was upset that Grijalva passed on the opportunity to establish a settlement on the mainland, yet Grijalva's defenders say that he did not have that authority. The second reason I've read is that Grijalva was viewed by his uncle as not being aggressive enough. Grijalva's expedition had been mostly peaceful, but his uncle wanted greater results than the samples of stuff his nephew had returned with. No matter the reason, Grijalva would be sidelined by his uncle, and the governor turned to the man he knew would be the best person to accomplish the task, Hernan Cortez. This would be a contentious match from the start, as Cortez and Valasquez's relationship was strained. But Cortez got things done, and that's what Valasquez needed. Cortez would be named captain general of a new expedition in October 1518, and he would go about recruiting men for what Cortez promised to be a lucrative affair. Cortez would use all of his considerable talents, as well as money, to acquire men and materials for his venture. 
He knew that he needed to move quickly, as his relationship with Velasquez could cool at any moment and the position revoked. Cortez's early efforts would pay off, and he raised 300 men and six ships in just one month. However, Governor Velasquez would grow jealous and uneasy with his rival's success and popularity, and in response he would, at the last minute, revoke Cortez's commission. However, Anna Cortez was not going to pass up what he saw as a chance of a lifetime. Instead of standing down, Cortez pushed forward. In short order, he would depart Cuba with 11 ships, 500 soldiers, 100 sailors, 200 or so African and Cuban slaves, who would be used as porters, 16 horses, and some war dogs. There were even a handful of women who would cook and sew and take care of other common tasks. So here was Cortez, sailing west without the official blessings of Cuba's governor. Those in the fleet knew it, or would eventually find out. Now, a few words about his army. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. As noted, Cortez had about 500 men. These were mercenaries and soldiers. In the ranks, he had 30 crossbowmen and 12 arquebusiers. An arquebus is an early form of firearm, similar to a musket, but usually requiring a stand, called a fork rest, to fire the weapon. Cortez also brought with him artillery. This included a dozen smaller cannons, often called falconets, as well as a few heavier guns. Finally, Cortez would bring two other critical items with him, war dogs and war horses. The latter would prove to be especially critical to his success. I don't get a good answer on how many war dogs Cortez had, but even a few dozen would have been formidable. These dogs, mastiffs and wolfhounds, were trained for battle. They even had their own armor and could be brutally effective. As for horses, Cortez had 16 of them, and it's important to understand just how special a war horse was at this time and place. These horses would have been big and strong and highly trained. A single horse could plow into a mass of men in combat, breaking a line and crushing man after man in the process. Like the war dogs, they would have their own armor. Also like the war dogs, the native people of Mexico had never seen these great animals, and they would be terrified of them. We will get a look at their effectiveness in short order. Cortez and his fleet would land on the island of Cozumel, following in the steps of Juan de Grijalva the previous year. The first Spaniards to land were led by one of Cortez's captains, Pedro de Alvarado, who promptly allowed his men to raid a native village, taking food and prisoners while the rest of the populace fled. These actions angered Cortez, who, wisely, wanted to maintain good relations with the natives. Cortez rebuked his men, released the prisoners, and paid the natives with beads and trinkets for whatever had been stolen. As word spread of Cortez's treatment, the local Maya Indians would return to the village, which the Spanish found consisted of well-built homes and pyramid-like temples. The natives were curious about the newcomers, pulling on the beards of the Spanish soldiers, as facial hair was not common amongst the locals. Also, with the natives was a man named Melchior. Melchior had been captured by one of the earlier Spanish expeditions and converted to Christianity. He also had learned some Spanish. 
Through him, Cortes was able to communicate, at least at a very basic level, with the local people. Cortes told the Maya that he was there in peace, and thus the two people got along pretty well, the natives providing food and shelter for the Spanish. Also, Cortes and his men would put on a display for the islanders. The horses would thrill and terrify the natives, as did the cannons and arquebuses when they were tested. From the islanders, Cortes learned about some white men who had come to the area years before and lived on the mainland. Curious, Cortes sent some of his men, along with Indian guides, to seek out these mysterious men. So, while Cortes waited for the search party to return, he sought to learn more about the local Maya people. For the most part, Cortes was a cagey and smart diplomat. While so many of his countrymen simply treated the natives with contempt, Cortes saw them as potential allies and valuable resources. He thus treated them with respect. However, one area that the natives and Cortes would come into conflict over was religion. Like many European men of his time, Cortes was a fervent Christian. And while he could accept the natives worshipping their own gods, he could not look past a common practice of the Maya and Aztec people, blood sacrifice. When Cortes and his men would examine the temples of the locals, they were appalled to find that the sacrifices conducted included not only animals, but people, and this included women and children. To the Spanish, this was unacceptable, and an atrocity at the highest level. It was something their Christian faith could not fathom. The truth is that religion will be a divide that will not be breached between the Spanish and the native peoples. The Maya and Aztec held the religious beliefs as fervently as the Spanish did theirs. Sacrifice, even human sacrifice, was a critical element for making their world work. Without it, the sun might not come up the next day, or the crops would fail, or sickness would overwhelm them. The use of human sacrifice was a huge narrative amongst the Spanish. They said it was barbaric and cruel, and not only did it needed to be stopped, the Indians needed Christianity in order to save their souls. I also want to mention that cannibalism is another thing that will appall the Spanish, and the tales of flesh-eating Indians will quickly get back to Europe. The truth is that the eating of human flesh did happen, but it was generally a symbolic thing, done to conquer enemies. It wasn't like the Aztecs sat around and ate other humans every other day for dinner. But that nuance was lost to the Spanish, who only heard eating human flesh and freaked out. Of course, it's hard to blame them, as such a thing was one of those big no-nos in Western culture. So, despite Cortez's general desire to keep things cool with the natives, when he saw the blood-stained floors of the temples, he could not help himself. Through the interpreter, he told them about Jesus and the Bible and so forth, and he stressed the abomination of human sacrifice. The natives replied, yeah, well, that's fine, but we like our gods, and despite what you say, we think they're good. Well, that did not go over well with Cortez and his men. They responded by smashing the idols in the temple and erecting a cross and a statue of the Virgin Mary. The Maya, as you can imagine, were furious, but they were also afraid of the Spanish after seeing the power of their great horses, ferocious war dogs, and the mysterious firearms. For the time being, they did nothing. So, as the Spanish prepared to sail up the coast of Mexico, Cortes would be delivered a powerful tool in the form of a man named Geronimo de Aguilar. Remember Cortes had sent out a search party to find out about the stories of white men living on the mainland? Well, his men would come back empty-handed. However, a message would eventually reach one of those men, the aforementioned Geronimo de Aguilar. Aguilar was a priest, and he had been shipwrecked off the Yucatan coast in 1511, along with about a dozen other men. Most of these men were captured and sacrificed by the natives, but Aguilar and another survivor, Gonzalo Guerrero, managed to escape. Both men would eventually be enslaved by other villages, but in time, they would earn their freedom. 
Guerrero would go native, taking a wife and having children, and even becoming a leader and warrior with his adopted tribe. He had no interest in going back and living with the Spanish. Aguilar, however, had never given up the idea of being rescued. He had even kept a prayer book with him the entire eight years he had been stranded. Just before Cortez departed Cozumel, a canoe arrived bearing Father Aguilar, who wept upon meeting the Spanish. Aguilar would prove to be a gift from God, as he spoke the local Chantal Mayan language fluently. In these early months, he will prove to be critical to Cortez's diplomacy with the natives. So, with a reliable translator in his ranks, Cortez and his fleet departed Cozumel on March 12, 1519. By the way, as I mentioned earlier, you can look at a map of Cortez's route on our website, explorerspodcast.com. Cortez and his fleet headed up the Yucatan Peninsula. On March 22nd, Cortez reached the Tabasco River, now called Rio de Grijalva, near the city of Patanchin. This was a thriving commercial center with a population estimated to be around 25,000 people. Two years before, the expedition under Hernandez de Cordova had barely escaped from this region alive. But just last year, Grijalva had reached Potanchin and treated peacefully with its cacica, or chief, a man named Tabscub. By the way, I'm not sure I'm saying that properly, but it's what I will go with. Cortez sent messages forward telling the local people, who were Chantal Maya and called Tabascans, that he came in peace and only wanted to trade. The natives would reject the Spanish advances and warn them to go away or they would fight. And knowing Cortez, you know he is not going to go away. Instead, Cortez responded by sailing upriver with about 200 men in his brigantines, which had a shallower draft compared to the larger vessels. He also sent 100 men overland under the cover of the night to the outskirts of the city. The next day, Cortez had the Riquirmiento read out loud to the Tabascan natives who were waiting to see what the Spanish were going to do. The Riquirmiento is really weird. Also, I mess up the pronunciation of the word all the time. I usually have to say that word 20 times before even getting close to having a decent take. That aside, the Riquirmiento was written in 1513, and it basically was a declaration that said that the Spanish had the divine right to take possession of the native people's lands. So here were the local Indians being told that they had new rulers, that their land now belonged to the Spanish crown, and if they defied any of this, they could be killed or enslaved. As you can imagine, this announcement always went over really, really well. Frankly, it is ridiculous. It only angered and confused most people when they heard it, but it did give the Spanish conquistadors justification to do what they did. The Tabascan people responded, predictably, with a rain of arrows and spears and stones. The fight was on. As we noted earlier, up to this point, Cortez had probably never seen battle. He will prove to be more than an adequate leader and soldier. The battle consisted of the Spanish in their brigantines and thousands of Tabascans swarming at them in canoes. The Spanish fired their arquebuses, which were deadly and frightening at close range, and the crossbowmen were brutally effective. The native armor could do nothing to stop a crossbow bolt, which could tear huge holes in a body. Also, there were small cannons mounted on the brigantines. The blast would sink canoes and kill and injure scores of natives. And then there was the Spanish steel. We have talked about this in other episodes on the show. A sword, wielded by a trained and experienced soldier, was a brutal and effective weapon. It tore through any armor the Indians wore. Also speaking of steel, the Spanish were clad in steel helmets and breastplates and mail, dramatically reducing the effectiveness of the native weapons. All of this was something the locals had never experienced in their entire lives. Still, despite the advanced weaponry, the Spanish were surrounded due to the sheer numbers of the Maya. 
It was then that the hundred men that Cortez had dispatched overland in the night made themselves known, surprising the Tabascans. This would break the native attack and send them fleeing. Cortez now had his first victory, capturing the city of Potanchin. He would claim the city in the name of the king of Spain. This declaration was important. Cortez made no mention of Governor Velasquez, instead claiming the land directly for the king. This was the lawyer in Cortez at work. He was technically not supposed to be in Mexico. Velasquez had revoked his commission, and Velasquez represented the crown. Cortez was essentially saying that he was doing this in the name of the king, and thus he was only answerable to the king. It was a risky gambit. If Cortez ended up back in Cuba with little to show for his efforts, Velasquez would be within his rights to arrest and even execute Cortez. But Hernan Cortez was gambling on striking it rich, and if he could please the Spanish crown, well, they would no doubt be willing to overlook his impudence, so long as it was worth their while. We should also note that this sowed seeds of dissent within his own army. Remember, many of the men in Cortez's fleet were loyal to Governor Velasquez, not Cortez. These tensions will plague Cortez for a long time. But for now, in the aftermath of his initial victory, Cortez had little time to consider such things, or celebrate. He sent out scouting parties, and after a skirmish with some natives, the Spanish learned that Tabascan warriors were gathering from all over the region, and not just hundreds or thousands of warriors, but tens of thousands. Cortez prepared for war. He unloaded six of his heavy cannons from his ship, his cavalry, and his war dogs. The next day, March 25th, after Mass, Cortez led 500 men onto the plains of Centla to meet the Tabascan army. It is said that the Tabascans had 10,000 men in their front line and 10,000 more in reserve. Cortez says twice that, but that was probably an exaggeration. They would be led by their cacica, Tabscub. The native army was well organized and well prepared, drums and trumpets playing as they advanced. The Spanish noted that the warriors were decorated with ornate feathers, and they had their faces painted black and white. They had bows and arrows and shields and spears. Some even had wooden swords. Many had quilted armor made of heavy cotton. The Tabascans' initial onslaught was repelled as the Spanish firepower, cannons and arquebuses and crossbows, took a massive toll on the natives. And then the Spanish swords and pikes, all being handled by expert soldiers, cut another swath of carnage across the battlefield. The fighting would continue, but the tide would firmly turn when Cortez led the cavalry into the fray. This was a stunning moment for the Tabascans. The Spanish had only 16 horses, but they thundered onto the field of battle and turned the fight into a rout. The natives had never imagined anything as terrifying as the Spanish war horses. The great beasts plowed through their ranks, crushing man after man in their wake. Cortez and his men would then wheel around and do it again and again. It was devastating, and the Indians fled in terror. By the time the Tabascans vacated the field, 800 of them were dead. Hundreds, maybe thousands more, were injured. The Spaniards would suffer about a hundred casualties, but only two deaths. It was a stunning victory for Cortez. I want to stop and make a note of something, and that is the light death toll of the Spanish. As I said, they had 100 casualties, but only two deaths. You will see this in these early battles, and it is curious, and I want to explain. The reason for so few deaths is that it was common for the people of these regions to try and capture as many prisoners as possible while engaged in combat. The reason is that they wanted live prisoners to be used as sacrifices. The more sacrifices, the better. Thus, the natives will prove to be experts at injuring their enemies, but not killing them. The next day, the Tabascans arrived and offered to discuss a treaty. They would, according to their custom, offer the Spanish gifts, acknowledging their victory. 
These gifts included food, jade, turquoise, animal skins, slaves, and feathers of precious birds, the latter highly valued by the local people. But in addition, it is here that Cortez would get two very significant things. The first was a group of 20 female slaves. This was not uncommon, and in of itself was not a major thing for Cortez. However, amongst the slaves was a woman named La Malinche. La Malinche would be critical in the coming months and years as she spoke Nahuac, the language of the Aztecs, as well as Mayan. This was important as Cortez's current translator, Father Aguilar, spoke a dialect of the Mayan language, but not Nahuac. As a translator and advisor to Cortez, not to mention his mistress, La Malinche, or Donna Marina as she was called by the Spanish, will play a critical role in our narrative going forward. In addition to La Malinche and the other women, the defeated Tabascans gave the Spanish something they craved far more than jade or feathers, and that was gold. When Cortes asked about the gold, the Maya ruler, Tabscub, said that there was no more gold in Potanchin, but he pointed to the west, Kalua, Mexico. And so there it was. The gold that Cortes and his men sought was to the west. Kalua was the lands around modern-day Veracruz, while Mexico was the great kingdom beyond. And it is where the Spanish dreamed of rivers of gold. Nothing drove the Spanish mad like their desire for gold. In fact, Cortes would say this about his and his comrades' lust for the precious metal. Quote, I and my companions suffer from a disease of the heart which can be cured only by gold. End quote. That is so foolish sounding, but it is so true. This lust for gold will consume the Spanish and lead to a confrontation that will leave thousands upon thousands dead and an empire in ruins. But that is for next time. We will leave Cortez and his men preparing to depart Potanchin and head up the coast of Mexico. And it will not take Cortez long to hear a name that will dominate much of the rest of this podcast, Montezuma. So that is it, part one in our series on Spanish conquistador Hernán Cortez. I hope you have enjoyed the story so far. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.